with me uh, to the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Today, Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 10. We're reading through verse 16. Uh, the old advice is to know thyself, and in studying and preparing for this passage, what I knew is that I myself would not be able to get through the entire text. Uh, and so what we're going to do, Lord willing, is to split this in half. We're going to read the whole text, uh, but these are, are deeply practical issues that we're going to find in Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse, uh, verse 10, uh, issues that come up again and again in the church and in our regular daily lives. And so I, I think it will be helpful if we look really at the first half-ish uh, of the text. We're going to read the whole thing. We're going to get the whole context of what Malachi is saying, but really deal with verses uh, 10 through 12 today, a little bit of 13 and 14, uh, but that's going to be our focus today as we look at Malachi. Lord willing, we'll come back in two weeks and we'll see the rest of this passage. That is because next week, Pastor Andrew will be preaching his last sermon for Redeemer Presbyterian Church before he moves on to South Carolina, and uh, you'll want to be here not only to hear that and to grow in God's word uh, together, but also to encourage him and, uh, and to join together in worship with us as he preaches. So there's going to be a break, but we're going to look at the first half of Malachi 2, 10 to 16 today, Lord willing, the second half when we come back in a few weeks. Now, before we read this passage together, please join me in a word of prayer. Well, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this, your word, we, your people, come uh, praying and asking that you would give your Holy Spirit to us. Lord, it is uh, apart from you that our minds are darkened, uh, that we live in uh, a fog of untruths and follow our own desires, but we need you, Lord, and you are able uh, to enlighten our minds and to lead us in the way of obedience with you. So we pray that you would, pray that you would glorify yourself as your people hear and understand and grow in living out your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit 
and do not be faithless. That's part of the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, R.C. Sproul famously said that if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, then God is not sovereign, and that if God is not sovereign, God is not God. Uh, It was his statement of the absolute ownership of God over the creation which he has created, and it's true. It's true of the physical world around us that there is no speck of stardust, there's no seismic wave that does not belong to the God who orders their movements as he sees fit. What is true of the physical world is true of our lives as well. So an earlier counterpart to R.C. Sproul's statement was the statement by Abraham Kuyper. He wrote that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Now, perhaps you notice the switch that takes place as we round the corner in chapter 2, verse 10 of Malachi. In the previous passage, if you were with us uh, last week, you know that in the previous passage, God had been speaking to his people about their religious life. The language had been about uh, sacrifices and priests and offerings and rituals, and God had been telling his people what they ought to do and how they ought to worship when they gathered together on a few-acre plot on the top of a mountain in Jerusalem. And now in verse 10, we find the God who follows his people home. Our passage picks up on issues of family life, marriage vows. It has to do with day-to-day questions like, who will I marry? And how will I stay faithful? And when is divorce an option? In our individualistic society, these are the questions we are told no one else has a right to answer for you. The party line for decades has been, what business is it of yours, what other people do behind closed doors? We've been told that the heart wants what it wants. We've been told to keep your Bibles out of our bedrooms. Well, if Malachi's prophecy up to now has dealt with sacred things, chapter 2, verse 10, begins a discussion of the decidedly secular. God's prophet is dealing with things that are personal and practical. And yet, you notice the return of religious language. You notice that uh, he speaks here, the Lord through his prophet speaks of profaning his sanctuary. He talks about religious-sounding things like abominations and acceptance at his altar, and the prophet is telling us there is no divide. There is no easy category switch between your religious life on the one hand and your regular life on the other. There is no square inch over your humanity over which Christ does not claim ownership. That's where we need to begin in this passage and with these issues today. You've noticed that that the first and the second half deal with with twin sins, twin issues that in basically every culture, in one way or another, people are tempted to try and minimize or explain away or do away with. And so we uh, read about the sins of improper marriage and improper divorce, but before we can think clearly about either one of those, we first need to grasp the moral danger of taking marriage lightly. It's our first point today, the moral danger of taking marriage lightly. Verse 11, 
tells us, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. There's the issue of improper marriage, and we're going to come back to verse 11 to unpack some of these specifics. But before we look at verse 11, take a step back and look at the text as a whole. Let's get a lay of the land and see the way that the prophet is arranging his argument. We have up to this point in our studies through Malachi uh, studied together two other disagreements between God and his people. And you remember that I've pointed out, if you've been with us, uh, that there is a repeated pattern that shows us what's going on. In each of these other disputations we've seen, there is a charge by the Lord against his people and then a rebuttal from the people to their Lord. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you've said, how? Prove it. Chapter 1, verse 6, you are despising my name, but the priests say, how so? The same patterns repeated here. There is a claim by the Lord, there is a rebuttal by the people, but unlike all of the other disagreements in Malachi, that dialogue pattern shows up in this text in the middle rather than at the, end, at the beginning. It's not until verse 14 that we hear God's people talking back to him well after the prophet has already begun to deal with the first issue in their society. God's people, we read, are coming to God's altar with weeping, with tears, with deep groans of affliction. They're trying to show how sincerely they want to be accepted by the Lord, and yet the Lord does not accept them. Their offerings are being rejected. They are being rejected. Verse 14, but why? It seems to be a question based in genuine ignorance rather than indignation. But you say, why does he not accept our offerings from our hand? And God's answer is, verse 14, because you have been faithless. Look at it. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. That language sounds familiar. It's an issue of breaking faith. It's an issue of rupturing a covenant bond. And compare that back to chapter 2, verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers, do you see the similarity of the language? You take the comparison one step further. Notice in verse 10, this language of one father, of one God, and you can compare that to verse 15, where in marriage we're told that God makes the husband and the wife one flesh. And what is the one God seeking from them? Now, if you've been through the Bible a few times, you already know exactly what Malachi is doing. He's structuring his argument in the form of a chiasm. We're drawn sometimes to chiasms in Scripture. We, we get this idea that they're somehow extra holy or spiritual. They're not. It's just a good way of arranging your ideas so that it's memorable for the people. And that's what Malachi is doing. He is structuring his argument. A chiasm has the main point in the middle, and it has parallel ideas on either side that are normally saying essentially the same thing. And that's what we find in, in this text. So we go from one God, faithlessness and covenant, to faithlessness, covenant, and one God. A chiasm is a thought sandwich. 
In this sentence, in this passage, verse 13, is the meat. In the midst of all of this breaking of vows, God is rejecting the worship of his people. And why is he doing it? Well, for two very closely connected reasons. They both have to do with faithlessness, and they both have to do with covenant breaking. And here they are bringing offering after offering. They're pouring out buckets of tears. They're groaning in God's presence, yet the Lord will not receive them. And the reason is that they are taking marriage far too lightly. They're approaching marriage and divorce in terms of personal advancement. What feels good to me? How can I get ahead? How can I be self-fulfilled? What looks right in my own eyes? They never stop to consider how their easy marriages and quick divorces would affect their faith or their witness or their relationship to the God who had created them. But now the wheels are falling off. Now they are experiencing that inevitable break in fellowship that always happens between God and his people when there is unrepentant sin. Now they cover the Lord's altar with tears. We don't actually know how it was that they discerned God's displeasure with them and and with their uh, worship of him. It could be that they were looking for God's tangible covenant blessings that he'd promised through the law and he had withdrawn them. It could be that they were measuring God's favor according to outward prosperity and they didn't have it anymore. It could be that some of them were under genuine conviction of sin. They had that gnawing sense of something unsettled deep in their souls and they couldn't put a finger on it but sometimes they wondered if it had anything to do with the way that they were treating one another. You know, maybe the way that it happens in our day, it happened in theirs, and the prevailing culture said, don't worry about that stuff. Maybe their friends told them, don't you worry about those old commandments. Those things were written at their time hundreds of years ago. Aren't we more enlightened than they used to be back then when those things were written? Maybe their friends told them, there's no shame in simply wanting to be happy for you and simply doing what makes you self-actualized. And maybe some of them listened. And they swallowed the lie. And they learned to ignore the voice of conscience and conviction. They began to listen instead to the voice of the culture. But it didn't stop that gnawing sense. And they still can't understand why it doesn't feel better to be pursuing their own happiness. We don't know how it was that they realized how bad things had gotten. However it happened, the people are finally listening where God has been speaking all along. He's taking the opportunity to teach them that faithlessness in their daily lives cannot be separated, disconnected from fellowship with the Lord on a Sunday morning. He's teaching them that their secular lives cannot be divorced from God's sacred demands. Do you remember God's diagnosis to his people in Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 and 2? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So it is here. The people have been 
faithless. They have broken covenant with one another. They have broken covenant with God. Their hands are full of violence, and that violence and sin has become a barrier between them and their God. Now, the expression of their sin might show up, might show up a little differently in their cultural context than it does in our cultural context, but the attitude at the heart of these sins is something that we share as well. We take marriage far too lightly. You know that by intuition. You know that because you live in the same world that I live in, and you see the same things that I see. You see the way God's plan for marriage has been progressively cheapened everywhere you look, from our court systems to our pop culture. You see the way that much of what passes for marriage today is nothing but some sliding scale of a relativistic morality and self-fulfillment. Uh, you see it all around you. You know that we feel this way about marriage in our wider culture by intuition. And if you want the proof, we could go on and, and quote the statistics. You know, the popular statistic is that half of all American marriages end in divorce. The number is actually a bit lower. It's closer to 40%, maybe 45%, depending on how you crunch the numbers. But even though the numbers are lower than we might think, even though the numbers have been falling in recent years, America still has the third highest per capita rate of divorce of any country in the world behind only the Maldives and Belarus. Even though the numbers are lower than we might think, the average lifespan of an American marriage is 8.2 years. And over the last 50 years, from 1970 to 2021, the average age of American men and women when they first get married has risen from nearly 22 to almost 30. That last statistic, I think, reveals one of the most important shifts in our cultural thinking about marriage. Because it used to be that marriage was something that that you did as uh, uh, something to be sought out. It was an important part of entering into the world as an adult, of establishing yourself, of, of doing the things that, uh, that were your duty in the culture, just, the, just living as an adult. But now marriage is not something you seek out. Marriage is something you add on if you want at the end when everything else is in order. Now marriage isn't something that we pursue until our education is figured out and our job is nailed down and our house has been moved into. Might not be something you do if you do it at all until you've been living together for a few years and you've had a few children and you've tried it out to see if it fits and you like it. But why? Well, because it's just a piece of paper, right? That's the line, and I, I know, yes, that, that all these statistics, all those figures represent the wider, unbelieving culture. But if you think that the next generation of Christians isn't far behind, you need to open your eyes. There's nothing new under the sun. This is not a uniquely new, uniquely Western problem where we're thinking little of marriage and making light of it. This is the pattern that is repeated in every culture through varying expressions every time God's institution of marriage is cheapened and treated like something we can use for our own selfish ends. And so despite what our unbelieving world may think, marriage is not a merely personal issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a matter of sin and righteousness, the prophet would tell us. 
And so the first thing we need to understand in Malachi 2 is the moral danger of taking marriage too lightly. Once we've seen that, though, secondly, and more specifically, we need to understand the sin of marriage outside the faith. The sin of marriage outside the faith. Now, we know in a basic sense what the people of Malachi's day were doing. Verse 11, Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is marriage outside the bonds, the bounds of of biblical religion. It was a union between the people of God and the idolaters surrounding them in the land where they were. We know what they were doing, and to a certain extent, we know why they were probably doing it. In our culture, we probably assume that the reason was either love or lust. Maybe those Canaanite women were just prettier. Maybe they were more fun to be around. Maybe they could form a bond that they couldn't with somebody in their own Israelite culture. But the ancient world didn't approach marriage that way. In the ancient world, marriage was about family alliance. That's why they were usually arranged by the father of a family. The father of a family would choose a husband for her daughters, uh, for, her, for his daughter that he thought would be able to provide for her. And he would always choose from among those reputable families that could add honor to his own family name when his daughter was joined to their son. It was about a family alliance. It was about the community, not just the individual. The same thing would happen with sons. You would pick a daughter from among tribes where they were invested in different trade guilds, where you could open new opportunities because of the joining of the two families. And you can imagine that in tiny, depressed Judea, occupied by Persia and filled with unbelievers from every nation that conceivable, the temptation to expand opportunities through family alliances with unbelievers was enormous. Nevertheless, that's the way it normally worked. It was the father who chose the marriage for the good of the family. That helps us, I think to understand why this issue comes to us in Malachi in such community-focused language. Look at verse 10. The prophet begins with the unity that God's people share through their common faith. Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created us? Now, the, the ESV capitalizes Father. I think they've done the right thing there. When it talks about the father, it's probably not talking about a patriarch. It probably doesn't have uh, in mind Abraham, but it has in mind God himself, who calls Israel his firstborn son. It has in mind the God who has redeemed his people and, and brought them from slavery in Egypt. He promised faithfulness to them. He's taken this nation to be his own chosen set apart people. It's a stretch for us to think about it this way, but it's exactly the same for the church today. This is what we study in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Where does the unity of the church come from? Well, it comes from our connection to Christ. We are one people because we share one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. So the people of God are and always have been a spiritual family. Why then, asks the prophet... Are we being faithless to one another? Why are we profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now here is our clue that the problem that's being dealt with is a religious issue, not a racial issue. When he talks about uh, the covenant of our fathers, he means probably the, the Mosaic law given at Sinai, all the Old Testament books of the law from Genesis to Deuteronomy. 
And in God's law, that question was never whether God's people could marry across ethnic boundaries, but whether they could marry across religious boundaries. Deuteronomy chapter 7 gives us the background. We happen to be reading through the conquest of the promised land, but Deuteronomy chapter 7 is God's warning for the people before they got into the promised land. There will be lots of tribes when you get in there, he tells them. There will be Hittites and Girgashites and Amorites and Canaanites, but the people of God were not to make alliances with them. They were not to join with their false religions. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. What's the problem? Is it an issue of racism? Is it xenophobia or closed-mindedness on the part of Israel? No, it's an issue of devotion to the Lord. God wants the hearts of his people as well as the offerings of his people. And he knows that one of the best ways to grow his children in daily devotion to the Lord is by having them join to someone else who shares the same heart for the Lord that they do. The Lord, as loving Father, wants His children to be joined in marriages where the name of God is exalted by the husband and the wife together. God also knows that where that pattern is rejected, it will lead to leading hearts in the wrong direction. It will have an individual effect, of course, on on the one who turns away and and leaves the faith of Israel instead, goes after the the false gods of the nations. It will have an individual effect, but it will also have a community effect among the people. And if you have the time, you you can trace out the history of the Old Testament. You can draw a straight line from intermarriage in the nations to flirting with idolatry, to increased sin among the people, to judgment and exile in Babylon. Here is Malachi talking to the generations of people who have just come out of 70 years out of the promised land because of the sins that he's warning them against. And there's a community cost that comes with these things he's telling them. Now, it doesn't happen in the church the same way anymore, but you can still see the community cost when when professing Christians join with unbelievers. You have to look for it, maybe. It's a bit more subtle, but you've seen that young Christian woman go off to college and fall in love with that attractive young man who has no need for the church. Pretty soon, she doesn't have any need for the church either. And there's an individual cost, but there's a community cost as well because the body of Christ loses another limb when that happens. You've seen the older single man still struggling to find a godly wife. You've seen the working young professionals, especially in New England, who realize that the pond full of Christian fish is increasingly small. And so we come up with a solution. We'll lower the standards just a little bit. He'll find a a good woman, a, a moral woman, a woman with... Virtue. She won't be a Christian exactly, but she'll be someone he can share his life with because marrying an unbeliever would certainly be better than living a life alone, right? Kevin DeYoung reminds us that if you want to know what true loneliness is, try being a Christian married to a non-Christian. Try being a believer yoked to someone with whom you do not share your faith or your hopes 
or your approach to basically anything of significance in the world around you. And so in this man's case, it goes a little differently. He, he marries that unbeliever. She seems to be a good woman, and in many ways, she probably is. Good citizen, good neighbor, becomes a good mother in the ways of the world's thinking. And he doesn't leave the church like the woman who goes uh, to college and falls in love. At least he doesn't leave the church immediately. He tries to live in both worlds, but it becomes a strain. He used to teach the junior high Sunday school class, but the time that it takes to prep for that is no longer appreciated in his household. He used to tithe, and he used to support the missionaries of the church, but you know those funds are handled a little differently now. He used to be a man of strong convictions. He was like valiant for truth and pilgrim's progress, but more and more he's becoming a lot like pliable. And before the inevitable break with his faith is completed, the believing community suffers little by little, piece by piece. The energy this man could have put into serving the Lord and his people is given to other things. Make no mistake, don't be fooled by the lies of the world around you. Marriage outside the faith is a serious issue. It's a sin that also affects the body of Christ, the church of God. Far more importantly, it is a sin against the God of his church. Verse 11, one more time, says that an abomination has been committed. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. Actually, the word there is not sanctuary, it's simply holiness. In this setting, interpreted as the holy place. And perhaps that's what it is, the, the holy place where God's people gather together. And so maybe the idea is of uh, the clean and separated people gathering with the unclean and unseparated people and bringing that back in. Maybe it's talking about the sanctuary in the temple, but what is the holiness that the Lord loves. We read Deuteronomy chapter 7 earlier. If you keep reading, you find where Malachi is drawing his text from again. Right after God warned about marriage with the Canaanites in verse 3, he goes on to teach them in verses 6 to 8. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. What is the holiness that the Lord loves? It's his people. Not because they're lovely but because he loves them. Do you notice the reasoning there? It's not because you were the most of all the peoples that the Lord loved you, but because he loves you. You see, they're made lovely by his love. They're made holy by his setting his covenant love upon them and setting them apart for himself. And he loves his possession, his holy people that he's called out of the world. He cherishes them. He provides for them. He leaves them in paths of righteousness for, their, for his name's sake. He makes their cup to runneth over. He restoreth their souls. So why in the world would anyone who is so beloved by the Lord and precious choose to go against his commands and seek marriage outside the community of faith that he's provided for them? 
The answer is the same reason we always turn away and turn into sin. Do you know a married couple where you could say the same thing? Where you could look at a breakdown and, and maybe even an adultery in the marriage and say, they had it so good. She loved him so much. He had everything right there at home, but, but he went outside the marriage. He went somewhere else. He found a different way to get what he thought he was missing with what he already had. Why in the world would anybody go outside the community of faith that God has called his people into to find a spouse? Well, because we believe the lie that we can find out there what God is withholding from us in here. And we see that it's good for the eyes. And we see that it's desirable and so we take and so we eat. It's the same story over and over and over and over again. We believe that we can provide for ourselves what God is withholding from us. And so you remember those family alliances for the tribes in Judea. They were about more than just trade guilds and strong husbands. They were about providing personal security according to our own effort. This is where I think the Lord's word speaks very clearly to people of our day who are finding it hard to find Christian husbands or wives. No doubt we live in a cultural age where it would be easier to find a husband or a wife if a Christian didn't have to marry only in the Lord as Paul commands in the New Testament. No doubt it would be easier in many ways to open an app and swipe left and right depending on just a few good pictures of somebody you think is attractive. No doubt it would be easier to find someone to talk to and connect with if your only interest needed to be what are the TV shows you like to watch and what do you like to do on the weekend. There are untold scenarios in which it would be easier to find someone to marry without worrying about the added variable of shared faith and salvation. But what is the cost at the end of your life of simply choosing the things that are easier? What is the cost before the judgment seat of pursuing what you can provide for yourself rather than what God is calling you to receive for his sake? Jerry Maguire, our former pastor, used to say that if you want to find the idols of your heart, ask yourself, what is the thing that you want so badly that you are willing to sin in order to get it? So it is here. And so it is, I think, that for many of our singles and probably for some of our students, our college students and our high school students in the next several years, I'd be willing to bet that the option to marry an unbeliever rather than never get married at all is one of the temptations that's going to test Jerry Maguire's theory. What do you want so badly that you're willing to sin in order to get it. What is the thing that you believe you can provide for yourself that God is withholding from you? I've said a lot about this text already, and I admit uh, that, that on the whole, the balance has been more toward the law and less toward the gospel, and there are some texts that tend to move in that direction. That's okay. Let me apply this text in a few very specific ways before we close and come to the table. 
first. This, this text has something to say for those who, who we might say have gotten it right. If you're one of those ones who's gotten it right, the word to you is praise the Lord. Rejoice in him. I know many of your stories. I know many of you were married as a believer to a believer. You had this wonderful ceremony uh, that celebrated your shared faith. that gave glory and honor to God. I know others of you who were married as an unbeliever to an unbeliever, and the Lord saved you both. Praise the Lord. However it happened, if you find yourself as a believer married to a believer, that's his gift to you. Cultivate it. We're going to come back in two weeks and talk more about you then. So there are some that have gotten it right. There are some who have gotten it wrong. And you need to know that there is grace for you in the gospel. I don't know if there are many uh, of them among us today. I don't know if there are any of them among us today, but you know who they are. They might be your friends, your neighbors. They might be your children. They might be a professing believer married to an unbeliever. And however it happened... If that's you, you need some things, you need some wise counsel, you need much prayer, you need a supportive, helpful church. Most of all, you need to know that the sacrifice of Christ covers all the sins of his people. Even the ones that you remain living with for the rest of your life and the rest of your marriage. His blood can make the foulest clean. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 15, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. So some have gotten it wrong. Others, only by God's grace, have gotten it right. Others are still waiting to see. And to you, God's word is be patient. Keep walking with him. Trust where he is leading you. I cannot tell you when or if God's plan for your future will ever align with what you want for yourself. I can't make that promise. I can't tell you if the Lord is leading you to marriage or if he's going to give you the gift of singleness and all the extra oomph that has to come along with it. I can't tell you those things, but I can tell you that he is good. I can tell you that he's sufficient. I can tell you that in Christ Jesus, you are beloved. His chosen holy possession, his sanctuary, which he loves. And so walk with him and trust in him and follow where he's leading you. That's our word today. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for speaking to us where we are, and all of us come to these things in different places, but you never change. Your mercy is always the same. Your Savior is always good. His sacrifice is always sufficient for our sins. Oh, Lord, give us that true repentance we spoke about earlier and clothe us with new raiment as a bride decked for her husband. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy the sacrifice of the cross, which leads us to yourself. Thank you for taking away all of our sin and shame and our tears of repentance, and in, our, in their place, giving forgiveness for your chosen holy people. Thank you for calling us your own and making us your beloved. We pray in Jesus' name.